Well, good morning again. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 13. We've been making our way through the book of 1 Samuel, and uh, this morning we're going to talk about the foolishness of Saul. I was challenged this week uh, with a psalm, Psalm 14.1, that says, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. What does that look like, though? When we think of those that say there is no God, they, they sometimes very much look like intelligent people. They're no fools when it comes to their thinking. They could have advanced degrees, searching facts, establishing the logic for their case against God. They seem very clever. They have knowledge in this world. We could even acknowledge that some of the brightest people in this world would call themselves atheists. Psalm 14.1 doesn't say the fool says in his mind there is no God. It doesn't say that. It's, it's the one who says in his heart that there is no God. That is the fool. And this is much more serious. This is more searching. And many people in this world would never say in their mind that there is no God, but in their heart is screaming loud and clear, there is no God. So the issue cannot just be a recognition of God in their minds, but also in their desires, in their fears, in their days and nights, in their life, when no one else is looking, in their character, in their resolve to live a certain way. It's in the things that they say and the things that they do. And yet, not to be a fool, sometimes you will look like a fool. So in our pursuit to run from looking like a fool, we become a fool to God. Some of the least foolish-looking people in our world take no account of God. In our pursuit to not be called a fool by God, we will then be called a fool by the world. Which will we choose? And it's easy to make that decision here sitting comfortably on a Sunday morning with your church family, but which will you choose on a Monday at school or at work? This is where the rubber meets the road. And this morning, we're going to look and see what, cho what Saul chose. This morning, we're going to look at the first 15 verses of chapter 13, and I want to focus on just a few verses right at the end of that section, because in those few verses, we see the point of the chapter, I believe. Uh, we are expository preaching church, so the, the point of preaching we believe and teach is to find the goal of the text and to expose it. Uh, expository preaching is preaching in which the main point of the biblical text being considered becomes the main point of the sermon being preached. And the main point in this section that we're going to look at this morning is the foolishness of Saul. So I have some supporting points to drive home why I believe this is the main point, and they come in verses 11 and 12. If you look here, we'll, we'll read the whole section, but look at verses 11 and 12 of 1 Samuel 13. Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. This is where he's driving. This is the point here. And in this 
these two verses are the three main points that I want to uh, bring out and bring to your attention this morning. The foolishness of Saul's fear, the foolishness of Saul's impatience, and the foolishness of Saul's disobedience. So I want to read all of the verses here, 1 through 15 of Saul, 1 Samuel 13, and then I want you to, to listen as we look and see this, those three points. Saul's fear, his impatience, and, and disobedience. So follow with me as I read, starting in verse 1 of 1 Samuel 13. Saul lived for one year and then became king. And when he had reigned for two years over Israel, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel, 2,000 with Saul and Michmash in the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 with Jonathan and Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba, and, and the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout the, all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard it and said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines. And the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. And they came up and encamped at Michmash to the east of Beth-Avon. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, what have you done? Saul said, when I, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at Bichmash, I, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you, for then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. There it is, friends. Let me pray and we'll dive in. You pray for me, I'll pray for you, and we'll look at the text has to say for us this morning. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the opportunity that we have to come and gather together as the body of Christ and to open up your word. And we ask that you would teach us this morning, that you would be the teacher and the, and the guide and, and to lead us to understand this text. And that you would see here, Saul. You would understand his decisions and what was driving his decisions, that we would even see ourselves in this story, that we would learn and grow and be convicted, desiring to change, desiring to leave this place different than when we came in. And we thank you for your word. Thank you that it, it teaches us and guides us and encourages us. And may it be that way this morning. 
and we'll give you all the honor and glory for what you do in this place. For we ask it all in Jesus' name, amen. The chapter begins by setting the stage and what has transpired since we left the challenge of Samuel in chapter 12. And it begins with a textual problem that's puzzled commentators. Uh, the, the, the generally regarded Hebrew text of the, OT, of the Old Testament reads this in, in, in verse one. It says, Saul was one year old when he began to reign and he reigned for two years over Israel. Now, obviously there's a problem. Saul wasn't one. Saul was more than one years old when he became king and he reigned for longer than two years that we can read in the scripture. So how do we interpret this? Well, I believe, and there's many different interpretations, many different options, but I believe the solution is to take the Hebrew as it stands, which literally reads a son of a year, which doesn't necessarily talk about Saul's age, but the unusual circumstances where Saul became the one designated to become king. Because Saul didn't become king by birth, like most do. He, he wasn't like other princes, but he came king as he was anointed. And so the year that is mentioned is probably best understood the time between his anointing from Samuel and when he's installed king in chapter 11. That's roughly a year. And the two years reigning, well, that's too short. So how do we understand that? It's probably the time between him being installed as king to this day where we see here in chapter 13 where he disobeys the command of God. And this is the initial rejection of Saul as king in this chapter. And it will unfold more as we go from chapter 13 and chapter 14 and chapter 15. And in that, it's, it's the rejection of Saul as king. So don't blink because you're gonna miss Saul's reign. It doesn't happen very long. And as we come to chapter 13, Saul is leading the people and the first account here that we read of his military action. If you remember in chapter eight, the people asked for a king to go out and to fight their battles. And now the Ammonite threat was neutralized as we saw in chapter 11, but there's still the Philistines. And we'll hear from them a lot in this book. If you remember, Saul was chosen by God to deliver Israel from the Philistines. If you look back at chapter nine, verse 16, it says he will show Save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen the people because their cry has come to me. And then in chapter 10, there's an expansion of what Saul is to do. If you were to look back just a page there to chapter 10, verses five through eight, you can read. He says, after that, you shall come to Gibeath Elohim, where there is a garrison of the Philistines. And there, as soon as you come to the city, you'll meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp and tambourine and flute and liar before them. Remember that? He, he prophesies with them. And then down to verse seven, now when these signs meet you, he says, do what your hand finds to do for God is with you. And then verse eight, then go down before me to Gilgal and behold, I'm coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Remember, this is Samuel communicating to Saul what he should do. And then he says in verse eight, seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what to do. So he gave the command to him. And as we enter chapter 13, we need to recognize that Saul hadn't dealt with the Philistines yet. And so it'd be reasonable that one of his first military actions would be to, to battle this threat of the Philistines as the king of Israel now. But for us to understand the issues that we will uncover in this chapter, we need to know that what was commanded by, by God in, in chapter 10 through Samuel. The first thing he was to do was to attack the Philistines. He attacked the presence there. Do what your hand finds you to do. Attack 
and, and, and take out the Philistines. And then the second thing he was to do was to wait for further instructions from Samuel. In verse eight, he was to wait for Samuel to come and do the, the offering. Well, let's look into it here. Chapter 13, verse three, Jonathan initiates the battle. The attack on a Philistine outpost provokes an all-out war. What do you think was gonna happen? The Philistines just gonna lay down and take it? No, it's war now. And Saul summons his troops in verse four. And the Philistines likewise gather their army. And God had promised Abraham earlier in, in, in the scriptures that his descendants would be as numerous as what? Do you remember this? As sand in the seashore. Do you, see, do you notice how the author promotes now the Philistines? The, the writer used the same expression in verse five, but it's against Israel now. And now faced with this incredibly large army, the Israelites are terrified. And what do they do? They, they hide in caves and holes and rocks. Some even quit the battle altogether. And some follow Saul, and it says that they follow along behind him, trembling. And Saul could see the fear. He could hear it. He could hear the, the scared voices of his men. It's a, it's a pitiful scene. And the consequences of provoking the Philistines were now evident. And in all this, Saul obeys God. He does, he finds what his hands to do, and it's to take care of the enemy. He, he follows through with trying to deal with the Philistines. He, he steps out to carry out what God had commanded him to do, to take care of the enemies of God. He made the right decision. And he was looking to defeat those people that mocked him and mocked his God. And so he takes care of the first thing. And now Saul comes to Gilgal, as we read in chapter 13, as said in chapter 10, what would happen. And he was to wait now for Samuel, who would come and who would offer the sacrifices, who would give him instructions. And he does wait, as it says in verse 8. Whether that was the full seven days, to me, is, is immaterial. He's waiting, but his men are leaving. They're scattering, it says. And he makes a choice. He decides to move on with the burnt offerings. And this may seem like it's not a big deal. But friends, it reveals what's going on inside of Saul's heart. And in the scene here that we've come into is a scene that reveals Saul's foolishness. The first one that I mentioned earlier is the foolishness of Saul's fear. The foolishness of Saul's fear. In the, the story here in chapter 13 gives us tiny flashbacks to a story that we can read in Genesis 3. An incident where in the first book of the Bible, Adam and Eve have a response to God. And really, it's embedded in all of our hearts. The history of Adam and Eve is embedded in all of us. If you remember Adam and Eve, they were first human beings ever created, and they walked with God in the cool of the day, we're told, and they loved the glory of God. And then one day we reread that, that they decided to be their own masters, right? They, they decided to be their own rulers. They were going to be their own authority. And they decided it was time for them to call the shots. And on that day, everything changed, everything. And on that day, God came, and they didn't come to him. Instead, 
What do they do? They hide. They run into the bushes. They hide themselves. God calls to them, Adam, Adam, where are you? Adam says, I'm, I'm here. And he's hiding. I'm afraid. He's full of fear. He's hiding his, his nakedness because he, he now feels vulnerable. He feels naked. And what does he do? He hides in the bushes. And it's been the same way ever since that day. We are all ruled by fear. What is fear? It's what Adam did. It's what, it, what Eve did. They, they hide. It's, it's wrapping yourself up and trying to make yourself safe. It's seeking security more than seeking God. And Saul is foolish because he is controlled by his fears. What does he fear? He fears failure. He, he fears losing. His people are running away. They're, they're fleeing the situation. They scatter, he says. And, and the ones that stay, what are they doing? In verse 7, Saul was at Gilgal, and all the people followed behind him, trembling. They're right behind their king, trembling with terror. It wasn't supposed to be this way, Saul thinks. God's on our side. We should not be feeling this way. And they experience fear, fear of the unknown, fear of death, fear of pain. And Saul, the main character of the story, was experiencing fear. What fear was he experiencing? Have you ever heard of the imposter syndrome? You ever heard of the syndrome, the imposter syndrome? Do you know what it is? It's this sense that many people have, but won't admit that they have it. It's this fear that even though you look competent at what you're doing, you are deathly afraid somebody's going to find out that you really don't know what you're doing. Imposter syndrome. The fear that someone will find out that you're really not that good at what you say you're good at. When will someone find out that you're an imposter? That you're not really what everyone thinks you are. Some of us are afraid to get close to other people because we're afraid. And we think if, if they knew exactly what I'm like, that would be it. If I get too close to people, if they really know me, if they knew my faults, if they knew my failures, if they knew my inexperience, they'd run. That's why some of you here don't have any friends. You fear rejection. Saul is suffering from an imposter syndrome. People are fleeing. The enemy is coming. He can hear it. He can see it. He, he, he knows that he's in the midst of this when it falls apart. He's fearful. And this fear is controlling him. Do you experience those fears? The fear of failure, which is the root of all these fears. The fear of failure is this voice that you hear in your head you're getting behind Jeff you can't get behind no one wants to follow you Jeff this it's not good enough Jeff you need to work harder you need to work smarter the voice it just repeats itself in your head there's also a fear of the future you don't know what tomorrow looks like you, do, you don't know if you'll have enough for the future so you're going to work and work and work and work now you have to save your money. You don't know what it's going to be like, so you have to save money. You have to have enough. 
and this fear gnaws at you. But the Bible tells us that we're driven by this fear because at the root, we have a mistrust. We don't want to trust God. That's what drives this. And so we run and we work and we try to hide our nakedness. And we're fearful of giving over our lives to God. Ultimately, all our fears come from being afraid of God, thinking ill of God, mistrusting God. That's the root. You have this fear of God. You may say, that's just nonsense. I don't fear God. I find God boring. Christianity is just offensive. Or maybe I, I find Christianity fascinating, but I'm not afraid of God. And I say, nope, I disagree. You do. Every human being thinks wrongly, thinks ill of, of God. We, we all mistrust God. And we don't want to get close to him. And we respond like Adam and Eve do, and they run and hide our nakedness. They don't want to get close to him, because if they get close to him, it will traumatize him. I'll give you another evidence of why we're all afraid of God and think bad about him. Whenever I talk to someone about Christ and, and about them turning from this world and turning to him and, and asking them to step over this line into faith, very often they ask questions about the cost. What will it cost me? A good question. And very often they, they know what the cost will be. And they recognize that they will have to change how they view their relationships now. They, they have to change how they view their work. And they fear that if they become a Christian, that they will now be cut off from so many possibilities of life. And they're afraid that if they give their lives to Christ and completely obey, that they'll miss out. And do you see how this is a fear of God? Because if you give yourself truly to him, if you believe that you will be under his control, that you will live a wretched life, that'll be no fun. Everyone this morning you need to look at your heart and ask, am I really committed to God? Have I given him everything? Or am I holding something back? Is fear driving you to hold back on God? Because you, you think that life will be boring or hard or that you'll miss out on something. I honestly believe this is why so many of us Christians give up on serving God full time in ministry or give up on the prospect of becoming a, a missionary because you're afraid of what you will miss out on. We want to stay in our homes. We, we want to stay in America. We, we won't risk because we don't trust God. And we won't commit because we could get hurt. And we think ill of God. And we think that he isn't worth the risk. And we fear. But friends, the, the bottom line is that God is light and God is truth. And when you get near him, he shatters our self-images because we've, we've built our self-images on our jobs and on our friends and on our families and on our looks. And when we get near God, we get near his truth that tells us of his holiness and then reveals our sin. We don't like it because it crumbles our self-image. It shows us how weak the things that we're building our lives on. 
And, and we have to lie to ourselves so much to build up a self-image without God, without his love. And we run and we hide because we're afraid and we're naked. And the only way to be covered is to submit under God. And he'll cover our fears. Do you see yourself in Saul here? You know, he's running in fear. It is foolish. The second thing we see is the foolishness of Saul's impatience. We not only see the foolishness of Saul in his fear, but also in his view of time. Speed is always relative to your perspective. What we see here in this chapter is Saul's view of time, his view of speed, the quickness of how things should happen. If you remember in chapter 10, what I read earlier, Saul was to go to Gilgal and wait seven days until Samuel would come and offer the sacrifices and give direction. And, and now time was precious for Saul. His perspective was influenced by his surroundings. But in his decision to offer the sacrifices, he was blind. He forgot what he should know, the word of God. He should know about God. His heart is now on display by his actions of him offering the sacrifices. And in his heart, he says, there is no God. Do you know who the most impatient people are, though? Children. Right? They are impatient because their perspective is so small. And they're so young, and everything seems so long. Do you remember this in school where you'd stare at the clock and it would never move? Let me give you an example. A child comes to you, this has never happened in my home, and says that they want a bike. They're now four years old and they're ready for a bike. And we think, yeah, great, you're old enough, they're motivated enough, they want to ride a bike, and so let's get her a bike. And you go to the store, and the one that fits great for, for the child and for our budget is $100. But as you're ready to buy it, the salesperson who's very kind comes along and says, in, in three weeks, we're going to have a big sale, and that bike's going to be 30% off. And a normal person says, 30% off. I can wait three more weeks. It's $30 cheaper, right? Is that the right math? That's worth it. It's prudent. It's reasonable. It makes sense. But that's not how a four-year-old thinks. So you make the decision, mom and dad, this is what we're going to do. And you come home and the child's upset and you sit down and you have a very intelligent conversation with the child and you go to them and explain all the details of how they'll get the bike, the, the exact bike that they want. And we'll even have some money left over. We can get a nice helmet that they want, even a bell for the bike. It'll all be great. And you know what the child says? What? Don't you love me? I want this now. See, my sisters already have a bike. They don't have to wait three weeks. That's forever. I'm going to die before I get it. Because that's how a child looks at it. Their perspective is so much different than that of adult. They can't see that far ahead. Have you ever tried to explain days and weeks to a four-year-old? It's impossible. They only see right now, right in front of them. And they're convinced that you don't love them. 
our impatience in life is always tied to our perspective, to what we see. Now put yourself in the perspective of Saul. He knew that the Philistine army was coming. And as he each day drew to a close, he believed that his end was coming too. But he waited. He waited seven incredibly long days. Can you imagine what those days would have been like for him? Can you imagine the questions that he would have had every single day? Have you seen Samuel? Have you heard? Is he coming? Where's Samuel? I mean, seven days seems like it can pass really quickly, but I'm sure those seven days didn't pass quickly at all. And we come to the seventh day and there's still no Samuel. We're not told in the scripture whether it was the end of the seventh day or the beginning of the eighth day, but in verse eight it says, he waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal and the people were scattering from him. And and honestly, I don't think it even matters whether the seventh day finished or the eighth day, that doesn't matter. Because how many men are still with him now? There were so many when it started, but now it's just a fraction. And yet, where's Samuel? He's, he's nowhere to be found. And for Saul, he wasn't going to wait any longer. He needed to act. Samuel wasn't coming, or so he thought. So in verse 9, Saul said, Bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. And as soon as he finished the offering, the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came, and Saul went out to meet him and greet him. I'm guessing Saul had a relieved look on his face as he goes out to greet Samuel. He goes out to meet and greet him. Maybe he's even smiling at this point, relieved. Hey, Samuel, hey, hey, buddy. I've got things under control now. I got the sacrifice done. Check. And now you've arrived. We're good. We're all set. And the smile fades away. Like the voice of God to Adam and Eve in the garden after they ate from the fruit that they shouldn't have. Like the voice of God to Cain after he murdered his brother. And even the question to Achan when he brought the the wrath of God on Israel, Samuel asked the question, Samuel says, what have you done? What have you done, Saul? What did you do? How, how, How could you? Why? Samuel's not relieved. He's not pleased with the work of Saul. Saul, he, he, he knows it. He has a defense. Did you listen to his, his defense here in response? And Saul said, when I, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I mean, in this you, you get the but, 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 but. I had no choice, Samuel. I, I couldn't stop the people from scattering, Samuel. You, you didn't show up. Where were you, Samuel? And I, and I couldn't go out to war without the favor of the Lord. Uh, what do you mean, what did I do? 
I did what I should have done. Where were you, Samuel? I mean, if you only had come just a few minutes earlier, you could have stopped me. This is, this is really because you're late, Samuel. It's not my fault. Where were you, Samuel? And do you see the foolishness of impatience here? Impatience is a damnable thing. Why? Because impatience is basically a different religion than the one that you have. Because impatience, you are essentially saying, I want God to serve me. And I want to tell him what he needs to do for me. And what needs to be done. I'm in control, not him. And friends, that's a different religion. In fact, it's the religion of paganism. You see, pagan religions are those that have those, those deities, right? The corn god, the water god, the house god, the safety god. They're, they're gods all over the place. And, and what you need to do is you manipulate those gods. You, you do what they say you need to do. You sacrifice stuff for them. You give food and such to them. You manipulate them. It's a bargaining relationship. So, so they would give you what you want. But you don't serve them. You never love them. You use them. You do whatever you need to do to get them in a position to give you whatever you want. And friends, that's paganism. Impatience is paganism. Impatience cuts you off from the real God. It cuts you off from the real God because he's not going to deal with a person who's saying, come and deal with this right now. I need you to take care of this right now. Do it now. Because you don't talk to someone like that that you have respect and love and adoration for. We need to remind ourselves of the gospel again, friends. Our impatience is sheer foolishness. We're impatient with the God of the universe, the one whom the Milky Way is like a speck of dust. And us, we are a speck of dust on top of that speck of dust. We are nothing. We are created. He is the creator. And this expansive gulf between us and him. And yet Christ crosses the gulf. He comes and he loves and he gives and he empties himself to die for us and he asks us to trust him. He's worthy of our trust. He is worthy of our patient hope. Do you see the foolishness of Saul's impatience? Are you impatient too? Last, you see the foolishness of Saul's disobedience. And the story of Saul is the story of foolish disobedience. When Samuel comes, he again teaches Saul. In verse 13, Samuel says to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you for then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. 
A fool is one who doesn't obey. You need to feel the weight of this episode that's given before us here in for Samuel 13. To obey God for Saul was an extraordinary thing to ask, considering the circumstances. And we might even reasonably say that it was close to impossible. Why? Because to obey in those circumstances would require him to trust God against every instinct, against every evidence, and against every aspect of his experience at that moment. Remember that the Philistines are coming in massive numbers, and the Israelites, well, they're scattering in equally massive numbers. Everyone is scared. And it's a huge mistake to think that to obey God is an easy thing. Trusting God is neither straightforward or simple in the midst of a crisis. But disobeying God is simply foolish. The foolishness of disobeying God, the, the same foolishness that we see in Psalm 14.1 that I read earlier. And this foolishness cannot be seen by simply looking at the circumstances. Because in most circumstances of life, it will look foolish to trust and obey God. No, the, the foolishness of disobedience and the wisdom of obedience can only be seen when we take into account something other than the circumstances that we're in. Samuel says to Saul, for then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. And so in light of the current circumstances, the Philistines, the threat, Saul's decision to disobey the command of God may have seemed prudent and may have seemed right. But in light of God's promises, it was the most foolish thing that he could have done. Samuel didn't come when he said he would come. And we can't stay here forever, Saul says. What if the Philistines surprise attack us? I have to do something. I have a kingdom to run. And so Saul offers a sacrifice. And God said different. He said it was to be Samuel. And for Saul, it didn't matter. For Saul, the circumstances dictated that he would disobey God. And in effect, he disobeys the law of God, the word of God. He is saying to Samuel, the end justifies the means. And God says, no, disobedience to my word is never justified. Never. Saul sins. And he would suffer the consequences of this rejection of God. He says, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, his own choosing. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince, to be submitted under him as king. Prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And in this he's saying it's cosmic treason to disobey God. And Saul, he doesn't understand this. He's saying, I, I'm not trying to overthrow the whole universe, God. I just want this little part right here. And even though it may seem small, he's trying to overthrow God. The Bible says that Obedience to God is very hard because he will often take you places that you don't understand and places that you don't even want to go. And he will lead you in ways that seem very foreign to your understanding. 
very uncomfortable. And he will take you down paths that you would have never chosen for yourself. Obedience is, is difficult. and can be very confusing and very hard. But friends, what's the alternative? Disobedience? That's never the right choice. And those are your two choices, to obey or disobey. And disobedience is lethal. Ask Saul. And we will see the unfolding of his disobedience for the rest of this book. We will soon see the one that God has chosen to lead his people. Because this one will have the heart of God. Do you see the foolishness of Saul's disobedience? <clears throat> yeah, it's interesting to study each week to preach. Because as I, as I begin the week and I read the passage, I'm never quite sure how the week will go in preparation. And this week I came across an interesting quote by a novel written by George MacDonald. He wrote a book, a children's book, 100 years ago called The Princess and the Goblin. The quote intrigued me so much that I had to get the book and I had to read a children's book this week. And in this short book, there's a princess and she has a, a fairy grandmother. And the fairy grandmother at one point says, because there's goblins, goblins in this fairy tale, it's a good book, you should read it. It's short, you can read it in one sitting. She, he says to her, you're in a great deal of danger and when the goblins come to get you, I want you to come find me. And the little princess says, well, it's very hard to find you, grandmother. And she says, well, he, here's what I want you to do. And she, she brings out this little ball of thread and she gives the princess a ring and puts the ring on her finger and attaches the thread to the ring. And then she puts the other end of the thread in, in her cabinet in her grandmother's place. And she says, now, now when you're in real trouble, take your ring off and put it under your pillow and feel and you'll be able to find the thread. And no one else will be able to find it or feel it. And, and, and she says, follow the thread to me. But I want you to know something. The thread may take you in directions and in places that seem to be absolutely dangerous and, and absolutely the wrong direction. But whatever you do, follow the thread. If you leave the thread, you'll be lost. And if you hold on to the thread, you'll find me. And I'll be at the other end. And, and as the story goes, it's a good story at one point. This happens. She's in danger. And she puts the ring on underneath her pillow and she feels the thread. And, and every other time she'd ever found her grandmother, she just went up to her house and went to the attic. But as she, she does this, she, she puts on the ring and feels the thread. It takes her out the door. And it takes her up a mountain. And it takes her into the goblin's den. And she says, I don't get this. And she's afraid and she tries to go back. But, but when, when she tries to go back, the thread disappears. And so she follows the thread in. And it turns out that she actually ends up rescuing one of the heroes in, a, in another book called Curdie. And she didn't even know that Curdie was in danger. And Curdie says, how did you find me? And she says, uh, well, the thread. And he can't feel the thread. He, he doesn't understand what she's saying. Now, how do we get out of here, she says. Well, I have to follow the thread. And at one point, she, she holds onto the thread and it seems to be going the wrong direction. And, and Curdie, he, he mockingly says to her, you can't go that way. I tried to go that way. Nobody can get out that way. And she turns and she says, I have to follow the thread. 
It doesn't matter how stupid it looks to you. It doesn't matter how suicidal it looks. I have to keep the finger, my finger, on the thread. And she starts to cry. She's an eight-year-old girl. And he backs off. He says, all right, all right. And they find their way out. And it brings her finally to her grandmother. And you think, what does this have to do with the sermon? And the fact is that you cannot follow your wisdom. You have to follow God's wisdom. You have to follow his word. And very often to follow God's wisdom is to look like it's going to be suicide. Imminent death. But that's not the case. And the only way if you understand this is to look at the one who was filled with compassion and mercy. And who's that? It was Jesus on the cross. The one who was filled with mercy. And don't you realize when you read the gospels that when the people saw Jesus Christ on the cross, you know what they said? He's a fool. He doesn't know what he's doing. Even the people that loved Jesus. Right? Read about Peter. I mean, the disciples, as they walk and they get to the cross, they think, this makes no sense. I mean, here's the man that had this incredibly miraculous power that he, he virtually banished sickness from Palestine over these last three years. And here's the man with this incredible wisdom. He has obviously enough wisdom to, to heal all of the issues in our, in our social and political life. And here's the son of God. And what's the father doing? This looks so foolish. And they looked at the greatest act of mercy and the greatest act of wisdom in history. And, and many people were genuinely confused that day. And, and they say, how in the world could this be? You see, the, the grandmother in the story didn't tell the little princess why the thread was going that way. She said, just follow it. And it turns out she's rescued. You follow it, and it turns out it's the right way. See, God didn't tell Saul why he needed to obey the command of God. He didn't tell him why he needed to wait for Samuel. He didn't tell him why Samuel was the one to make the sacrifice. He didn't tell him why he expected him to trust. To keep his finger on the thread. And Saul didn't. He didn't do it. But today, friends, he's asking you to keep your finger on the thread. To trust God. You don't trust the timing. You don't trust the circumstances because those will change. You don't trust having safety. You don't trust what everyone else is doing or what everyone else thinks of you. You trust God. And you can only do this if you look at the one who really kept his finger on the thread. Jesus Christ, the thread took him to the cross. It seemed to be going and leading him away from life, but the life 
was on the other side of the cross. The resurrection, Jesus was led to life. And through his sacrifice for us on the cross, we can have life. Jesus said, whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. We will find our lives by losing them in Christ. By following the thread. By following him. He is the only way, friends. He's the only way. This morning we're going to celebrate the life of Christ. So men, would you come forward to serve our family, the communion, this morning? And as we go to the Lord's table, this bread and the cup are the visible gospel. Join me in prayer. God, I thank you that we can come to your table this morning knowing that you have done it all to accomplish salvation for your people. That you followed the thread all the way to the cross. And thank you that we can join together with other believers. Remember our Lord's sacrifice for us on the cross. That he took our place. He took our punishment. Thank you for being the gospel for us, Jesus. Amen.